Let us pray. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. Listen for the word of the Lord. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Listen again to God's word for us. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to a house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come to you and say, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors, in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. And grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our passage this morning, Jesus was at a leading Pharisee's home for a meal on the Sabbath. And as we know, at this point in Luke's gospel account of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was traveling from Galilee towards Jerusalem on his way towards his arrest and his crucifixion on our behalf, on his way towards bearing, bearing sin and death for our sake, so that we might be saved not only simply for life eternal and the resurrection to come, redeemed from our sins, but so that we might also begin growing into life abundant here and now, that we might begin being cultivated increasingly in love with God and our neighbors as we await God's full kingdom come. 
So it was as Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly ministry that he went to this leading Pharisee's home for dinner on the Sabbath. And it's not clear if this Pharisee invited Jesus out of honor or to challenge him. But as we heard in verse 1, the Pharisees were, quote, watching Jesus. They were observing him, seeing what he would do, what he would say. And it was as Jesus was being closely watched that he observed those at the dinner playing a game, a status-seeking game in which they were all trying to pick places of honor at the table. Reading the room, reading the room and seeing what folks were up to, Jesus then unleashed a parable on folks, as he often does. And it was effectively a riff on the passage from Proverbs that we just heard about not exalting yourself in the king's presence, not claiming a place among the king's great men, but instead waiting for the king to say to you, come up here, uh, rather than to humiliate you before his nobles by telling you that you've got to move down Given the context, Jesus, of course, shifted that parable, kind of riffed on that, um, shifted that proverb, riffed on that proverb, and gave it the setting of a wedding feast. And he said, when you go to a wedding feast, don't try to snag the best seat you can, or you're going to be shamed when the hosts might come to you and say that you've got to move down, move out of the way for somebody more prestigious or honorable. Rather, uh, Jesus said that in line with Proverbs 25, you should take a lowly seat and then bask in the honor of being invited to move up to a more honored location. And then Jesus laid down a proverb of his own saying, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted, which itself is really kind of a version of the famous line, the famous Proverbs from Proverbs 16, verse 18, which reads, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. If you go around exalting and boasting of yourself, you're gonna be humbled. Jesus then, of course, extended the parable and turned it on the host himself, saying that, Hosts shouldn't invite people to dinner in order to try to climb that social ladder, to play that status-seeking game. You shouldn't host folks in order to try to get a quid pro quo from your guests. But rather, hosts should give luncheons and dinners really just for the benefit of their guests. And Jesus noted in the parable, there's no better way to ensure you're following that prescription than sharing a meal with folks who can't repay you who live far below what society takes to be your status or station. But brothers and sisters, what is the humility that Jesus commends to the religious leaders in that room 2,000 years ago and to us by extension today? What is that humility? What does it entail? I think it's helpful to start by noting what that humility is not. Because humility, as a virtue, strikes a middle course between two extremes. And on one extreme is something we might call pernicious pride, an overbearing belief that one is superior to others in some key respect, or maybe even all respects, 
that pernicious pride that is an inflated sense of oneself as head and shoulders above others. Uh, And that kind of pride is also often accompanied, as we, I imagine, know all too well, by the compulsion to brag incessantly about how good you are, how much better you are than others, how little they measure up to you by comparison. And this kind of pernicious pride tears at social bonds between people, as it often leads folks to be self-centered, lacking compassion or concern for others. It often leads folks to be vengeful and hostile to anybody that they feel is not giving them enough respect, the respect that they feel they so rightly deserve. That kind of pernicious pride often leads folks as well to be indifferent, uncaring toward anybody that they think has no bearing on their social ranking or status. Ironically, I think that kind of pernicious pride also often, frequently, arises really from actually a deep insecurity about whether one is actually good or worthy of respect and praise and love and belonging. I think the need we can feel for people to pay attention to us, to know how great we are, and ideally tell us how great we are, can arise because we don't actually feel securely worthy of love and belonging. We feel that we have to prove our worthiness to others. We gotta make sure they know it, they see it. In her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, uh, sociologist Brene Brown notes from her research with thousands of people uh, that there's, quote, a deep sense of love and belonging that is an irreducible need of everybody, all women, men, and children, She writes that we're biologically, cognitively, physically, spiritually wired to love and be loved and to belong. And when those needs are not met, we don't function as we're meant to. Brown further argues and writes that, quote, when you stop believing in your own worthiness of love and belonging, you start hustling for it. And pernicious pride, trying to show off that you're smart enough, rich enough, fast enough, pious enough, whatever it might be, that arises as part of that hustle to prove yourself worthy. So if humility on the one hand entails avoiding that kind of pernicious pride, on the other side, I think it entails avoiding self-abasement. Humility is not thinking less of yourself so much as more of others. If pernicious pride over-asserts how great one is, I think self-abasement unduly deflates it. Thinking that you're no good or hammering home how much worse you are than others, that's not really humility. It's really kind of the flip side of that game pernicious pride is playing. On this front, self-abasement buys into that story, that game, that one's worth does in fact depend on one's social status does in fact depend on how you rank over and against others. And when we self-abase ourselves, if you self-abase yourselves, think poorly of yourself, it's because you're buying into that idea that you're just a loser in that game of social standing and social ranking. Humility as a virtue, though, as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, charts a middle course between those two extremes. On the one hand, pernicious pride. On the other hand, self-abasement. 
And in charting that middle course, it was something that was actually really unique in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, to uphold and uplift that virtue of humility. In the entry on humility in Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, it notes that, quote, in the Greco-Roman world, many regarded humility as a sign of weakness or even a character flaw. And its connotations of being lowly or in service to others were often used disparagingly. That Christian, Christian should view humility as a virtue was therefore quite striking in the ancient world. Along these lines, uh, similarly, uh, in a book called Power, Service, Humility, Reinhold Feldmer holds that many folks in the ancient world, rather than thinking humility was a good thing, adhered more to the advice of Achilles', Achilles father uh, to Achilles in the Iliad. Uh, they tended to follow that guidance uh, in the Greco-Roman world and culture that, quote, it's always and that you should always be the best and be superior to others. So when Jesus is throwing out the idea that we should be humble, this is something that's at odds with the Greco-Roman culture around him. And yet, humility is at the core of who God is and who God calls each of us to be. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul famously described how the saving act of God on our behalf in coming incarnate as Jesus Christ was an act of humility. Paul wrote, and Paul encouraged us to follow in that humility, writing, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, valuing others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Paul writes, let the same mind, the same mind, be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then Paul went on to quote what many scholars believe is one of the earliest hymns and affirmations of Jesus' divinity, a hymn that explains and enfolds the mystery of the incarnation and the language of humility and proclaims that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, assuming human likeness, and being found in the appearance of human, humbling himself and becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That hymn, of course, goes on to say that God therefore exalted Jesus even more highly and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who declares that true leadership 
true living into God's image is not lording power or control over others, not dominating others, but serving others. As Jesus taught his disciples too in Mark chapter 10, saying, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you all. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who also led the prophet Micah to famously declare, he's told you, O mortal, what's good and what the Lord requires of you. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We worship a God who says, quote, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think the root of this kind of humility that doesn't seek to exalt itself, but seeks to serve and care for and love and delight in others. I think the root of that humility, of that gentle disposition towards others, of that secure sense of self, lies in knowing and in feeling in your bones the reality that you are loved no matter what. The root of that humility lies in realizing, recognizing that your worth, along with everybody else's, comes from God, and that you are loved so deeply. Because God made you a part of a good creation. You are loved so deeply because God crafted you in the divine image with particular gifts and graces, talents and abilities to enjoy and bless the world and those around you with. You are so deeply loved because even though you and I, all of us, have missed the mark of actually living and leaning in God's image, even though we have sinned and fallen short of that image-bearing glory of God for which God made us, even amidst that sin, God came chasing after us, came incarnate humbly as Christ Jesus to rescue us from our wayward hearts, to bear the forsakenness of sin and death for our sake so that we might enjoy and grow and be grown in the life abundant of bearing God's image in this world, both increasingly here and now as we're sanctified and eternally in the resurrection to come. And it's when we stand secure in that knowledge, faith, trust of who we are and whose we are, that we were made and loved and belonged to God, when we stand in that secure knowledge, in knowing the love from which and for which we were made, it's then that we can reach out to others in genuine service and care and enjoyment, rather than competing with them and trying to elbow them out in that status-seeking game, that rat race game for rank and respect. When you know that you already belong, 
that you're part of a good creation with God-given divine image-bearing gifts and graces to enjoy and share with others, then you don't need to hustle against others for belonging or worthiness. When you know that you're forgiven and saved by God from your sins so that you can live abundantly and flourish in bearing God's image in this world here and now as you even await the kingdom come, then you don't need to hustle against others for belonging and worthiness. Ultimately, we can only love our neighbors as ourselves when we love ourselves and know ourselves as ones securely loved by God, our Creator and our Redeemer. The unflappable knowledge that you are loved no matter what by God, that your worthiness of love and belonging as God's creature can never be taken away no matter where you fall or how you fall in the game of social status and ranking, that enables you to treat others with love and kindness and gentleness instead of with hostility or arrogance. In the end, sisters and brothers, and in conclusion, I think Christ-like humility is also congruent with a healthy rather than a pernicious pride that comes in recognizing all the things we've just been talking about. That healthy pride that goes and flows with humility, it's also important to note that it's not a everybody gets a trophy kind of pride. Being humble still harbors plenty of room for competing heartily and pursuing excellence with vigor in concert with others. But I think the distinction is that is in recognizing that any trophy, any competitive ranking, any way we measure one another, measure against one another in social status rankings, it's recognizing that none of that has anything to do with our true worth or value, whether it's your own or it's anybody else's. Those social status and rankings, they don't have anything to do. They're not determinative of your worthiness of love and belonging. And so competing, pursuing excellence, whether it's in work or it's in play, I think it just means humbly never forgetting uh, that your and everyone else's true value stems inextricably from God's creative grace and God's saving grace. And on that front, I just want to close with a prayer, a really great prayer, from Douglas McKelvey's book, Every Moment Holy. It's a powerful prayer entitled, A Liturgy for Those Who Compete. And while it's focused on sports, I think it could easily be applied to any field of striving or competition we might do in which we're using our gifts and talents both excellently and humbly. And the prayer goes as follows. Oh God, let me strive for excellence in form and execution, training hard, enjoying the abilities of mind and body you have given me, knowing that even in the strength and grace and beauty and creativity of your creatures at play, you take great pleasure. Teach me to be gracious in victory and gracious 
in defeat. Remembering that in this competitive context, I am first your emissary, a representative of your emerging redemption extended even onto fields of competition. Let me never love winning more than I love those against whom I compete. Let me care for coaches, teammates, opponents, spectators, remembering that while the stakes of this game are only temporary, the people around me are eternal. Give me a graciousness to appreciate and to praise the performances of others, even my opponents. Give me grace to instantly forgive slights and to quickly take responsibility when my own actions or emotions impact others. When I'm involved in the escalation of conflict, let me be the first to ask forgiveness. Let me model what it is to be one fiercely focused on and invested in the drama at hand, pushing myself always towards the goals and yet ever extending a humility and graciousness in keeping with my status as your servant, O Christ. May your spirit always be active in and through me, shaping and sanctifying my heart, even here in the midst midst of my competitions. May God grow each one of us in humility, evermore here and now, and as we await the resurrection and the kingdom to come. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.